Welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. Today's episode is a conversation I had with Rachel Chapman, an assistant professor of sustainable agriculture in the School of Food and Agriculture at the University of Maine. Rachel's path to science, as well as to UMaine, is wonderfully meandering and a great reminder that sometimes it can take a while for the science bug to reach someone. I really enjoyed talking to Rachel and hearing about her science journey, especially as it came about through farming. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Rachel, welcome to the Main Science Podcast. I'm delighted to have you. I think we were connected by a mutual colleague slash friend, Matt Dexter, who does really remarkable work for cancer patients and their families. And he said, you have to talk to Rachel. So I'm really delighted to have you here. I know your background is looking at sustainable agriculture as well as how that affects nutrition and all sorts of other ways. And I'm not saying you're an expert in nutrition, but I mean like the sustainable agriculture part of what you do affects all this other stuff. So we'll get into that. But mostly what I want to know is how did you get into sustainable agriculture and kind of your first glimmer of thinking, you know, this science thing is a good gig. Yeah. Well, I can start by saying that I didn't really think that science was going to be my focus for a long, long time. And part of that was because I was told as a kid and as a middle schooler and high schooler that I did not have an aptitude for math, which I feel very resentful of that messaging now because I think what actually was happening was I was not getting enough attention one-on-one to be able to fall in love with math and science at an early age. What I was told that I was very good at was art and drawing and painting and creativity. So I kind of put myself in that box through high school and college. I went to an art-focused high school and I did visual art at a liberal arts college. But my high school was a pretty unique experience. It was a working dairy farm and vegetable farm. It was called the Putney School down near Brattleboro, Vermont. It was founded in the 1930s and it was one of those places where When you go, you're a boarding student and you have to work on the farm or work in the kitchens or work on the recycling crew or the maintenance crew all through your tenure there. So I spent quite a bit of time actually in the barn with the cows, a little bit of time with the horses. I'm not a horse rider, but I really like being in a horse barn at the crack of dawn, mucking out salt. (laughs) So I think I found a lot of personal fulfillment and peace kind of working in agricultural settings early on. You know, I was working during the school year, obviously, at the Putney School, but then in the summers, I worked on a vegetable farm in northern Vermont and also really enjoyed that. And I think maybe I'm not alone in being set on a path by someone that I respected and that I really felt mentored by. So the farmers who owned Kudak Farm in Swanton, Vermont, were those people for me. I worked for them off and on for about 10 years and felt like they were some of the first people when I was 14, 15, 16, who talked to me like I had reasonable ideas or interesting ideas or could contribute something. (laughs) So it wasn't all just picking green beans. You know, there was a really big personal development moment there for me that I'm incredibly grateful for. But I put it out of my mind. I thought, well, I'm not an ag person. I'm not a science person. I'm an art person. I'm going to art school going to be a studio artist in New York City. It's going to be great. So after I graduated college, I worked at the Vermont Studio Center, which is an artist residency center in Johnson, Vermont. I worked there for about 14 months, and that was a really kind of special experience also. And through that experience, I applied to MA programs, Master's of Arts programs, 
and I didn't get into any of them. And it was incredibly humbling. And it put me in this moment of like, you know, intense reflection. And luckily also through that kind of year in change at the studio center, I had the good luck to interact with a lot of professional artists. So, you know, there were 50 people coming through and doing residencies every month, but then we had visiting artists that would do studio visits and critiques and that kind of thing. So I knew I wasn't terrible, but I also knew that I didn't have what it took to sell myself as an artist. So that was really kind of the inflection point and made me sit down and think, what else do I really love? Oh, I really loved that agriculture thing. That was, that was fun. That was not boring at all. Maybe I should explore that. So I don't think it was entirely a left turn. I think there's a lot of overlap, actually. There's a lot of creativity in farming. But I got an internship on a goat dairy, also in northern Vermont. thought I wanted to be a cheesemaker. But I knew that I didn't have the capital to purchase land, let alone set up a herd in a cheesemaking facility, and that I needed to do some more work to really plan it out. And so I started taking advantage of a lot of classes and workshops that UVM Extension had to offer and Cornell Extension had to offer on small ruminant management and went to grad school in the meantime, kind of kill time until I could get on farmland. It was really how I was thinking about it. I enrolled at the University of Vermont in the Ruby Steen School for Environment and Natural Resources, and I did a environmental thought and culture concentration, which was a social science focus within the natural resource program. Because remember, at this point, I'm still not good at math. Scientists, I'm just a farmer who is doing a master's degree in science. And I think it took me until I finished that degree, which, you know, is a two-year degree, to realize that I really enjoy the science part of it. At that point, I also had kind of moved away from the idea of doing a goat dairy. I knew I couldn't really pull it off on my own with with the financial resources that I had. So I was looking at more types of farming that I could get into that had a lower financial gateway. So I started a vegetable farm with a friend from grad school. We actually defended our business plan for the farm incubator program the same week that I defended my master's thesis, which is a really, I, I don't know which one of those was the harder So you said you found out when you were working in the studio after your undergrad, you couldn't sell yourself as a part of being a successful artist in many ways. And maybe this is a misconception that I have, but it seems to me, especially small scale farmers, you have to do the same thing. You have to be able to selling vegetables in that. (laughs) But that's good. Like, that's what I was wondering, right? Because, you know, like a farmer's market is, I find there's an always on aspect to it if you're the farmer, right? And that it could be difficult if you don't feel like you can always be on. But I guess if you can say it's not you, but your vegetables, it's okay. Well, no, no, I think you're picking up on something. It's very true, you know, especially since the local food movement has kind of taken hold in our part of the country and in other parts of the country, there is this like mystique of the farmer. So in some ways you are kind of putting yourself out there, but In my experience, there wasn't quite as much of my ego wrapped up in it. I will also say that the first couple of years, I was very much the face of the farm. And then I ran the farm for about 10 years and change. And by the end of it, I had a great employee who was, I think, more of an extrovert than I was, but also just really good with the customers. And so we developed this system where I would go in the morning and get the stand set up. And then she would come at 10 a.m. And then I would kind of transition to being the person in the back restocking the boxes. And she would be interacting with customers more. 
that was the way it worked for us. But I would still, you know, I'm an introvert. I would go home and collapse on the couch. (laughs) I think farmer's markets are really cool, but I also just kind of like to lurk and not have to talk necessarily to anyone about it. (laughs) All right. So 10 years as a farmer and realizing that you love this agriculture thing and science. So I do know you went and got your PhD. What inspired that? Well, so, you know, small scale farming is a, is a tricky business. I think there are scale benchmarks that you can hit to make it viable. But I was, as you say, I like the verb lurking. I was kind of lurking below the financial viability benchmark. The farm broke even. I would say it succeeded in a lot of ways. It supported a crew, but I never drew a salary that was kind of sufficient. So the whole time I was farming, I was also working for University of Vermont Extension. I worked for their Center for Sustainable Ag, doing food access work and and local food market development work. And then my PhD advisor approached me and basically said, hey, I need someone who can do qualitative research, which was what I had done my master's in and I had been working on for UVM Extension. And I also need someone who's kind of embedded with the farming community in Vermont which I was. And he essentially at first just bought out 10% of my time from extension. And then over the course of working together, kind of said, you know, you could be doing this exact same thing and get a PhD at the end of it. So it was a little bit of a a roll into the program. While I was in my PhD program, I continued to farm. I got married, had my first kid. And then got to the end of my program and realized that I was really tired and I had thrown my back out multiple times. So there was a very real, can I physically do this component? And I'd always given myself like a six-year benchmark to say, if it's not financially viable at this point, like it's time to reassess the business. So I got to that point kind of as I was finishing my PhD and I realized like I knew how to make it profitable. I knew how to scale it up and it was going to mean being more in debt, which I hadn't been up to that point. I managed to farm for six years without a lot of debt, which I feel really good about. But I would have had to have taken on a significant amount of debt. I would have had to look for additional land and I would have had to scale up my equipment and my cruises. And I think I was just too exhausted and burned out at that point. So it took three years of therapy, but I stopped farming. (laughs) I get the stopping farming, but it's not like you left agriculture, right? I mean, no, no. And my, you know, my, my doctoral research was still very much, it was very social science based in the plant and soil science department, but it was very much embedded with vegetable growers in Vermont. And I liked it. And I loved, you know, you have a requirement to take statistics classes in grad school. And I took a fantastic applied stats class from a woman named Jen Pontius at UVM. And it it just kind of cracked things open for me. You know, it made me a better consumer of any kind of scientific paper that had a quantitative element, which of course, you know, you're reading all the time. But when I was still in that mindset where I was like, oh, I'm the arts person, not the science person, I glossed over a lot of the stats. I didn't understand the story they were telling me. I could read the abstract, it was fine. But once kind of Jen lit this fire for me, I started to kind of engage with science in a very different way. The creative element of it for me really sparked. So even though my dissertation work was all social science based, I started to dabble in kind of playing with some quantitative analysis. 
I was very lucky to get a postdoc appointment with the USDA Northeast Climate Hub. And my supervisor there was wonderful, a man named David Hollinger, who is a climate scientist who works in forests. And he basically said, you're a PhD, go design a research program, do your thing. So I stayed with them for four years and I was able to really start to build a body of research that spans both both qualitative and quantitative analysis. And I'm still learning all the time. But now I think I, I have a much bigger scientific vocabulary and it's fun. It's just fun. Like the midpoint in my PhD, I started to realize that like I could do it, I wanted to do it, and it was enjoyable. That's actually really great that you got to that point of your PhD and you were enjoying it because I think one of the hardest things would be to get to that point of your PhD and feel like it's a slog. And I think that that does happen sometimes. Can you explain what you mean by quantitative and qualitative research using an example of what you're doing now so that people can understand both the differences and how you're using them together? Well, I have two examples. One is a project that I'm running right now that's finishing up, that's been going on for a few years on irrigation management in diversified vegetable farms. There is this question that's kind of overarching in the Northeast, which is how much water do vegetable crops really actually need? You know, in arid climates, you can kind of count on, like, you got to put down an inch of water a week in order to grow anything. But in the Northeast, where we get more frequent rainfall, but that rainfall is inconsistent, you kind of have to be a little bit more sophisticated about putting together the puzzle that is rainfall plus what you're going to put out through sprinklers or drip irrigation tape or something like that. Most farmers, however, don't know how much water their crops need. Um, and that is something that we figured out through a survey of farms. So that's what I would put in the bucket as social science in a quantitative mode, right? So you put out this questionnaire, you give people a certain number of discrete choices to a certain number of questions, and then those choices get translated oftentimes into numerical values and you analyze them. So you can discover things like frequency with which farmers use weather reports to decide when to turn their water on, frequency with which farmers use soil moisture sensors. And there are a bunch of other kind of things that can be more heavily quantitative versus more grouped into categories. Now we pair that with things like interviews, where you sit down and you talk with someone in depth about their thinking around water management on their farm. And this is something that I did quite a lot for my dissertation, which the irrigation project is really kind of an offshoot of my dissertation. So sit down with a farmer for 60, 90 minutes, and just kind of ask them a short series of questions, eight to 12 questions max is what you can fit in that amount of time. Because like this conversation, what do people talk to They like to talk. And what you have from that is you have an audio report. You take that audio recording and you transcribe it into text. So either sending it off, there are companies that will do that for you, or you can take your own eight hours of time, 10 hours of time to sit and transcribe everything verbatim. That text file then gets inputted into something called a qualitative analysis software. There's a very popular one that I use a lot called Invivo, where you basically go through and you tag different sections of text by a predetermined theme. And then you kind of look at all of the pieces of text across all of the interviews that you've done on these particular themes. And you can make kind of generalizations about how people feel about topic X, Y, or Z. That's more of an example of a qualitative analysis. Now, how that translates into field-based 
quantitative work, which is really, I think, the fun part of this process is putting the social science and the natural science pieces together for me. Then my collaborator at UVM, Joshua Faulkner, and I designed a field trial that was supported by USDA FAIR. And we basically said, we know from these interviews and these surveys that farmers are deciding to put water onto their vegetables by how the soil feels, or they're not irrigating at all, or they're using timers in things like greenhouses, where you just kind of like, no matter what happens, you're putting an hour's worth of water through your pipes. Or the most sophisticated version that is recommended out there, but which very few people use, is called a soil moisture sensor, which is basically something that measures the electrical conductivity in the soil, which is it varies depending on how wet the soil is. So the sensor will give you a reading and then you can decide, you know, is that above or below the threshold at which you want to start your irrigation. So we developed a trial that had those four options, not irrigating, irrigating by touching the soil, irrigating through a timer, or irrigating using these soil moisture sensors. And we ran a replicated block design trial for two years in Vermont and two years in Maine. And we looked at peppers and cucumbers and tomatoes, and we kind of assessed the yield and the fruit quality to see what the outcomes were of using these different irrigation methods. We also buried what's known as a pan lysimeter under the ground that allowed us to kind of pipe water up from below the plants to see how much water we were losing through the root zone and how much uh, that water was kind of saturated with nitrate. So that's the point that we're at now. We're analyzing that data. And actually a master's student in my lab, Haley Jean, just defended her master's thesis on that project. It was really exciting. And our hope is to now bring that information back to the growers in some sort of intentional way that facilitates like a conversation and see what they think they'll do with that information, if it's going to change anything in their management, and if they have questions that maybe we didn't consider or maybe came out of this new bit of information. And that is like the next stage of whatever research we end up doing. It's really, you know, developed in a tight relationship with the very grounded needs that farms. So you mentioned you're doing both physical science research and then the social science research I'm having a hard time thinking of other examples of people I've spoken with who do both as part of their projects. So my first question is, is it as unusual or is it just me not remembering right? And then I guess my other question is, do you think you fell into it by virtue of getting to this point in your career through a meandering path and you saw how all these pieces fit together? Okay, those are two good questions. I'll take the first one first. Is it unusual? Yes, it's unusual. You know, we have a lot of discussions in my lab group about transdisciplinary research and what transdisciplinary research is. And so, because it's not necessarily always understood, maybe you'll humor me and I'll tell you what we think it is. But transdisciplinary research is when you have a set of questions about how the world works. And they are questions that one discipline of science cannot answer on its own. And so you bring together multiple disciplines in service of this higher kind of conceptual inquiry. There's also interdisciplinary research, which is like there are people asking related questions side by side, and maybe they come from different disciplines and they relate, but they're not necessarily fully integrated. So we're striving for transdisciplinary research in our lab because we think that some of the biggest problems that we face in the world 
are require us to do that. So things like climate change. There's a really big ecological component, obviously. There are economic components. It's complicated. And you cannot get at the big questions like climate change or hunger is another one that our team works on sometimes. You can't get at those with just one body of knowledge. Now, whether one person or one lab has to span multiple disciplines, you know, I don't think there's a clear-cut answer to that. I've definitely, in my career, been a bit of a generalist and a bit of a project manager, honestly, doing a lot of the science myself, but then also leaning really heavily on a team of wonderful collaborators, not just in my lab, but other faculty members at the University of Maine and within the USDA and lots of other institutions. So if I had to kind of identify one academic scientific superpower that I think I have, it's project collaboration and bringing people together. So yes, I do both, but it's a kind of a little bit of a bigger picture than that. Is it the product of my meandering path? Probably. But I think it's also, I don't want to be doing work without understanding the value of it or having it have some value. And so understanding how all the bibs and bobs of the projects that we're working on fit into some bigger narrative or some bigger need is just something that I think I, is really important to me because life is short and resources are precious and why spend time on projects or in efforts where there's not some larger purpose. How was it that you got to humane. I mean, when you talk about having a purpose and what you just said, it aligns perfectly with UMaine's mission as a land-grant university. I believe UVM is also a land-grant university. So your background and training from graduate work on has been that. So how did you go from a postdoc and a lifelong, for all intents and purposes, existence <laughs> in Vermont over here to Maine where we get to have you? Yeah. Well, I feel so lucky to be here, honestly. It's a good question. I, you know, when I was with the USDA, nobody thinks that postdocs are going to be around forever. So I was kind of recreationally applying for jobs for a while, not in any hurried way, because I always had non-academic backup plans. I was going to start an irrigation supply company out of my barn at one point. That's not really a good idea. I'm glad it didn't happen. I think when I saw the job advertisement for the position here, it seemed like the perfect fit. And I knew that I had to put my hat in the ring for it. Obviously, the whole academic interview process is intense, but I had a really good experience here with the, with the folks at UMaine. But I think more than that, there are a lot of similarities between Maine and Vermont. The communities of growers, at least, are not that far apart. And I had worked with people who were based here while I was based at UDF. So it wasn't such a huge leap. I definitely think that in the scientific community and thinking about job hunting, you know, I really lucked out. A lot of people aren't able to land in such a wonderful state or wonderful place. And I feel doubly lucky that I'm not too far away from family and it's a great place to raise kids. And there's a lot outside of the job that makes it extremely nice to be here. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. And I have said it as much. I think one of the interesting things, if you are in the world of academics that many people don't realize is you rarely get to pick where you're going to go. Throw your hat in the ring for different jobs. And if you're lucky, it's somewhere you want to live, but it's not a guarantee. There are definitely places I applied to where my husband was like, I'm not going to follow you there. <laughs> yeah, I, we've had those same conversations. <laughs> so 
we're going to circle back a little bit more. So you mentioned the irrigation project, which is really cool. And master's students, I know you identify your lab as an agroecology lab. So maybe just a little bit more description about what that means beyond the irrigation project and explain kind of like most faculty, I assume you have a few different projects going that are all related, but also independent. So if you want to touch on those, it would be really great. I would love to hear the different pieces of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I'm looking, I have a poster. So my lab group is made up of, at this point, I think seven graduate students and myself, and we're in the process of hiring a lab manager and a postdoc. The group is doing a really diverse set of projects, but we try to come together and have a project every semester, every year that kind of explores the unifying themes that we have as all being members of the agroecology lab. So I have a poster in my office, actually, that the team put together last year that describes the mission and the values of the lab. And it's really, you know, it boils down to doing engaged research and outreach that's of service. So you had mentioned the land-grant university theme earlier. I am very happy to be part of land-grant university. The public mission of land-grant universities in general, to be of service to the people of the state is something that I take very seriously. And I think that's something that is a deep cultural piece of our lab as well. So making sure that our research is grounded in communities' needs, different communities, but grounded in somebody's need and responsive, where we're trying to step out of that ivory tower construct. The way that we do work, we try to lean on what's known as participatory action research which is kind of following along that same theme of doing engaged work, just really listening to the community that we're working with at the research development stage, and then always circling back around to make sure that we're not just publishing our work in academic journals and giving talks at academic conferences, but also delivering the results back to communities in a way that is clear and makes sense. The, the different kinds of projects that the team is working on work in wild blueberries, work in Kansas wheat farms, work on the implications that COVID has had for food insecurity in Maine, work in agroforestry systems, and adult education and outreach around climate issues. So the big overarching umbrella is mostly climate change, climate change and ag. But one of the things that I think about a lot when I think about mentoring the different team members in our group is making sure that they have the room to kind of spread their wings intellectually and pursue more nuanced questions that are of deep interest to them. So those are the big categories, but then underneath those, the different graduate students are really kind of driving their own research agendas. And my job is to, to support them to do that. Have you found that the farmer community and the grower community in Maine they're interested in some of the same questions you are, but they're grateful to have you and your team looking at it because they don't have time or they don't know how to go about it. Like, are you able to work collaboratively with them and answer questions where you both have a synced in idea about it? Yeah, that's no, that's a great question. So specifically for wild blueberries, I started working through the Wild Blueberry Commission in the last year and a half, two years. And we've mostly been in like project development stages. So we have one greenhouse project going on right now and we're working on installing a bigger field project. Obviously, I never worked in wild blueberries before I came to Maine because they don't grow in Vermont. <laughs> but the way that those projects develop, the Wild Blueberry Commission sets forward kind of a short list of research topics. And some of them are quite specific. 
but others kind of have a little bit more wiggle room. And they had several in there about climate and changing precipitation patterns and figuring out what effects climate change is going to have on their industry over the next 50 to 100 years. So that is right up my alley, of course. But the other thing that was really nice is there's a team of people at the University of Maine, and there's also another team of folks at Dalhousie University who are working on aligned research. So, for example, I work really closely with Dr. Yangjing John Yang here, sorry, Zhang, and Lily Calderwood, who's the University of Maine Extension Wild Blueberry Specialist. And together, John and Lily and I and another collaborators as well, who often work in wild blueberries, have designed this very multidisciplinary trial to look at these questions of climate impacts in wild blueberries in a bunch of different ways. So Phil Fanning's working on the pollinator aspect. Shauna Annis is working on mycology and plant diseases. We just all have like a little piece of it. We'll all be working on one study. Will it be transdisciplinary in the end? I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll work on it. But, you know, the Wild Blueberry Commission is excited about that work and very supportive of that work. They write us kind of support letters for every funding grant that we go after. And then also we have kind of scientific collaborators from within the industry. Bruce Hall is with Wyman's, for example, and he's an agronomist. He's an agroecologist, actually. And he's been very involved in like giving input into the study design and designing the research questions. So I would say it's a very tight relationship and I find it to be incredibly exciting because I feel like I could move through every part of the process and have access to these organizations and individuals who are actually doing the growing on the ground. This is a totally weird question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So you've hit blueberries. You're not going to necessarily do lobsters because that's another (laughs) field, but potatoes are a huge (laughs) field in Maine, are a huge crop. And but much larger scale farms. Is that yeah. something that you have any experience with or any interest in? And I know there's a huge research component in other parts of the university where they are working on breeding and all of this other yep. stuff. I've had great conversations, but it's interesting, right? Because some of the stuff that you're thinking about as overarching the transdisciplinary is something that I think potato farmers... Some of them do instinctively, but they're also just beginning to realize that maybe they should be thinking in that way. I'm totally over my skis here, putting potato farmers and claiming that they should be doing one thing or the other. But I'm just curious, you know, are you going to hit that other huge main crop? Well, so I have not worked directly with potato farmers so far. Like you said, there are people doing really great work with the potato community. Many of them are my colleagues here at the University of Maine, and we interact around teaching and things like that. Will I in the future? I don't know. There's deep work with individual industries. And then there's work that I've also done that's kind of more broadly looking across as many of the ag sectors in Maine as we can do. And one of the things that, you know, one of the ways that I've touched on the potato community's needs is I've worked with the USDA SARA program led by Ellen Mallory here. And we've done a survey of all of the agricultural service providers in the Northeast. So people from extension, people from the state, people from the federal agencies that interact directly with growers. And we've asked them about what kind of assistance they are able to give growers on very particular climate adaptation and mitigation strategies. So there's been a lot of work out there about like, do you believe in climate change? You know, do you think it's important? (laughs) And these are all, this is good information, but it's very vague. So we have gone in and surveyed people on 
Do you feel comfortable giving farmers information about drainage tile and installing their irrigation system and sizing their pumps and figuring out their piping requirements and ditching and draining and water redirection, just like at that level of specificity? So we've talked to service providers across the Northeast, and then we've kind of compared that with another survey that we did of farmers in 2020 on the effects of the drought of that year. That survey included potato growers. And in that survey, there's a very particular question about, do you want information? Do you want financial resources? Which, of course, everybody does. Do you want technical advice or do you want no advice on these very particular topics? So the work that we're doing now analytically is to align those two surveys and see, like, is there a gap in what the service providers are able to provide and what the farmers want? And if there is a gap, how do we go about filling it? Well, I'm going to count that as you have also worked in the potato (laughs) area, so we can check that off for you for Maine. Do you have an area of crops that you're really excited about? helping more with, or maybe that's just too limiting. Like, is there a project that you have either just starting up or that you're a little bit in that you find super exciting? You kind of can't wait to see what happens with it. Oh, that's so interesting. That's a great question. I just love working landscapes, I think is my big thing. You know, I came in to this position as having more of an expertise in vegetables than anything, you know, and partially because I was a commercial vegetable farmer. So I know those crops from a very applied perspective. But the wild blueberry landscape is crazy. It's so different than anything I've ever been around. You know, the biannual nature of the crop, the pruning process. It's just so interesting and engaging. But by the same token, you know, I've been really excited to start working just in the last couple of months more closely with the National Agroforestry Center and designing a project with a new graduate student here to look at agroforestry in the Northeast and maybe even across the country. And so that's like another really dynamic, complex working landscape system that's different than wild blueberries or vegetables. I think mostly I'm interested in food systems at large and thinking about both how we can large scale be productive, like feed ourselves, continue to export if that's what we're doing, given the vast amount of environmental change that we're going to be experiencing. And can these landscapes also contribute to mitigation, to helping minimize the effects of climate change? I think we're going to need a bunch of different types of working landscapes in order to do those things. So maybe I should focus on one and go deeper, but I'm interested in all of them and how they work together. That's the big picture. It's just as easy for me to get excited about the kind of unique physiology of a specific problem and really looking at it in depth. I think if your academic superpower is getting collaborations working and building up teams like that, then I don't know that as an aside, focusing on one area is going to match what you are able to accomplish. So I think it's really important to know what you're good at and what you enjoy and pound that out. So not that you asked for my advice, but that's what I will say to that. No, I hear you. I think at this point in my career, I need as many people reminding me that as possible. Rachel, this is great. I think I could actually spend the entire rest of the afternoon talking to you. We would have a great time, but it would not serve your purpose of getting more work done and might turn off too many people who thought they were turning into a 40-minute episode and all of a sudden it's five hours. So I really like the work you're doing. I love the way you've used your experience in all these different ways and to have it coalesce around this really cool faculty position. It's a great reminder that, first of all, science has come in all shapes and sizes and interests, but also You never quite know how things are going to align to help advance things. 
been really fun to talk to you and hear all of that part of your story. Okay. Thank you for the chance. It's really fun. Great conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Main Science Podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice. And please leave a rating and review. It will help more people find us and help spread the word about some of the remarkable people doing science in Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is hosted by me, Kate Dickerson. This episode was edited and produced by Scott Lozell. We receive financial support from Central Maine Power, production support from Miranda Bouchard, and social media support from Next Media. The Discover Maine theme was composed and performed by Nick Parker.